Ready? Where'd Maria go? Did she run away? Oh, I'm sorry. Later. Anyway. So we're finishing up a series on um, Jesus on the cross and some of the things that he said and what this really means to us. And I want you guys to say this. I'm thirsty. That's right. And so uh, we'll start it here. John chapter 19, verse 28 says, After Jesus knew that everything had been completed so that the scriptures had been fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. And there was a jar of vinegar there. So the soldier soaked the sponge with the vinegar, put the sponge on a hyssop plant, and handed it and lifted it to Jesus' mouth. And so Jesus, what's going on here is Christ is dying on the cross. And so he's in the process of uh, atoning for us. And as he's doing this, um, the Bible says that he had fulfilled everything. Well, what did he fulfill? Hold on a second. I just lost my, my, uh, my notes, just completely decided to take a vacation. There we go. All right, they're back. And they're back. It says everything was completed. Well, what was completed? So what the Bible tells us is Christ became as us. He dies on the cross. And while he's on the cross, the judgment of sin is laid upon him. Right? This is the big moment. So the judgment of sin is laid upon him. The payment for your sins and my sins, it created separation. So the separation between him and his father, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's that moment, the moment of separation when the judgment of sin was laid upon him. And then the Bible says that after that was completed, uh, Jesus asks for something to drink. And then after he drinks, he shouts out this word and say it with me, to telestai. And it means it's completed. It's what they would stamp on a debt payment in the ancient world. So when your mortgage was fulfilled or your debt was paid, they would stamp it or write on it, tetelestai. And so God's, state, God's statement of tetelestai on the cross means it was completed. And so Jesus now having atoned for sin on the cross, it had been completed. Now all that had to happen was he had to take it to the grave and resurrect. So this is the second half. And so everything was completed. He asked... For, for something to drink. And so this tells us something. This tells us a few things. And so what does this mean? Why did he ask for something to drink? And what does this really tell us? Well, number one, it tells us that Jesus was fully human. A lot of people believe that Jesus wasn't human, that Jesus was God. Well, it's, it's, it's called a hypostatic union. The Bible tells us that God created himself a body and indwelt human flesh, laying aside his deity in other words, being fully divine, having access to all of his divine powers, yet utilizing none of them. Everything Jesus did, he did with the reliance upon the Holy Spirit. This is important to know. Jesus did no miracles, did nothing apart from having first gone into the wilderness, coming out of the wilderness, and he returned in the power of the... Anybody? Spirit. Exactly. Coming out of the wilderness, he returns in the power of the Spirit. And so everything Jesus did, he did as a man totally self-reliant and totally committed to the Holy Spirit. He is the divine prototype of the new creation. When we become born again, we are the new creation. Jesus is the prototype. He's the model that we follow. The argument is, is that what Jesus did, what Jesus did he did as God. Well, there's a problem with that. He can't die as God or we're not saved. First of all, God can't die. Second of all, he has to die as man. He died in human flesh, right? So he had to die as us. He had to not only take our place on the cross, he had to, the Bible says he actually died as us. He died as, as we are. So he died for us. Philippians 2 says this, being in the form of God, which means morphe, so he's God, morphe, mor morphed into human flesh, confining himself, restricting himself as a human being. He did not consider his, his God, his, uh, his deity to be something to be held on to. He did not to see that his, that his Godhead had to be held on to. He set aside his deity. This is what the Bible's telling us. He didn't need to hold on to it, but he emptied himself of his deity or of his divine attributes attributes, being still fully God, but not accessing them, taking the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of men, found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. So there's a two-tiered two, two obedience going on here, two-tiered humility going on here. First of all, God humbled himself and became a man, right? That's a lot of humility right there. Have you ever considered, I mean, it's beyond our understanding because we're not from his world. Jesus lives in a place where the streets are made out of gold, okay? 
And this is where Christians go, well, you know, God was poor. You know, God, first of all, God doesn't have a problem with money. One time I was praying, I was talking to the Lord about resources. He said, Kevin, I don't have an issue with money. I use it as asphalt, okay? I pave my roads with gold. You think I got a problem with gold? I got no issues with gold. I pave my roads with it, right? So Jesus comes from a world where the, where the streets are gold, the walls are jasper. The Bible says a river comes from his throne. There's a sea of diamonds, a crystal sea, literally a sea of diamonds around him. What's that look like? I don't know. When John is describing it, what he's describing is the indescribable. You ever try to describe something there's no language for? That's what John's doing. He's looking at it going, I don't know, uh, sea of crystal? Yeah, okay, that sounds good. That's kind of like how he's describing. He's trying to describe the indescribable. That's why when you read John, particularly in the book of Revelation, as he's describing what he's seeing, it seems hard to comprehend. Well, if it's hard to comprehend, it was probably hard for him to describe it. He's, you ever read about the four living creatures? These are beings, created beings that are around the throne of God that declare his glory, that are indescribable. He's just going, uh, I don't know. Looks like this. He's trying to do his best to put divine understanding into human language. And so God humbles himself. He leaves this world where he is in divine perfection, where he's in divine royalty, divine act. Everything's around him is perfect. He has angels singing and ministering to him 24 hours a day. It's wonderland. What's heaven? Heaven is wonderland. Is absolute and total perfection. It's what it is. When God created this world, heaven and earth were one. Bible says that his world and our world were one. The father walked with Adam in the cool of the day. The Bible tells us in the book of Genesis that Adam's world, our world, and his world were one, and that Adam saw angels. That's why when the, when the devil shows up as a talking snake, he wasn't a garden snake. It was a hanafesh. He's an angelic being with a serpent body, right? Very common in Egyptian um, uh, Antiquity is that being. It's called a Hanafesh. And so it's an angelic being, but it's got a body of a serpent. He probably saw a Hanafesh. He didn't see this garden snake talking to Eve. It wasn't like, like Dr. Doolittle stuff. It was angelic. And so he, and it wasn't, it wasn't in something that set Eve off because she was used to seeing angels. Angels were around her all the time. There were, these worlds were intermingled. God walked with Adam. We don't know that world. When Adam sinned, that world became separated from this world. This was, our world was bound to eternity. Heaven and earth were one. It's the whole symbol of the star of David, two worlds being one, intermeshed. That's what the, it's a, a triangle pointing up and a triangle pointing down. The, 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 the iconology is two worlds as one. When Jesus returns, two worlds will be as one. We'll have a new heaven and a new earth. We, Jesus is going to be on the throne. There's, that world is again going to be made one. But when Adam and Eve fell, we became locked in time and space. Adam and Eve our world became separated from eternity. We became separated and we had no access to the spiritual world at all. That's why the coming of the Holy Spirit is so significant to the believer. Because not only are we empowered by the Spirit, we have access to the spirit world. I don't know if you've ever engaged that, ever empowered, you ever stepped into that. You have access to the spirit world with dreams, with revelation, with vision, with prophetic, with power, with divinity. You have access to an inheritance that belongs to you that Jesus bought to pay you, pay for you to have. And yet the church still decides to love and loves to live in carnality. We love to live in a natural world. We love to just take everything as a point of human understanding. Our faith is spiritual or it's nothing at all. That's the truth. God is looking for worshipers in what? Come on, help me out. Spirit and in truth, right? Does he, is he, God's looking for reasonable, naturally minded, you know, just orderly worshipers. That's not what he says. Worshipers who understand spiritual engagement and worship from that place, from a position of truth. That's what it means. Jesus is truth. So we're in the spirit with a foundation of truth. That's what we are. That's who we are. When the church vacates its spirituality, it becomes nothing, good for nothing. We're the Kiwanis Club, ladies and gentlemen. We're the Moose Lodge. That's what we become. We become a social organization. Capable, we do all kinds of social functions, but we're not spiritually empowered. We're, we're no, the church needs to do what only the church can do. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out devils, and uh, cleanse lepers. That's the only the church can do that. 
Cleanse the issues of the flesh, that's leprosy. Cast out demons wherever we find them. Systematic overthrow of demonic intrusion. Whether it's with the people, whether it's in a society, we're the only ones with power over devils. Moose Lodge doesn't have power over devils. You do. A five-year-old believer has power over devils. We need to do what only we can do, right? Manifest miracles, signs and wonders, signs following. She has a lump on her breast. We pray for her. The lump's gone. You go, I wonder how that happened. It's a wonder. It's a sign that Jesus is who he says he is, and you wonder. Signs and wonders shouldn't be, this should be common in the church. It shouldn't be exceptional. It should be common. We'd be like, oh, cancerous tumor. Yeah, we had five of those last week. What else we got? You know, I mean, this is where we need to be. This is where the church needs to go. This is what we're called to be. We manifest his world. We don't know what we're doing, but we're supposed to practice. It's true. Just like your doctor. He doesn't know what he's doing, but he's practicing. That's why they call it a practice. <laughs> it's a practice. We're practicing here. <laughs> Trying to figure this out. Jesus was fully human. He became as us to heal us, to save us, to that we would become like him. Second thing was to fulfill prophecy. So Christ dying on the cross and actually asking for drink at that moment fulfills scripture. There's 300, ready for this? Hold your chair. 380 prophecies concerning the Messiah. 380. The odds of one man fulfilling 380 prophecies is infinity. It's impossible. Can't be done. The father foretold the coming of Christ and all that he would do in prophetic, uh, prophetic teaching so that when Jesus came, there is no doubt that he is who he says he is. There's no doubt. I mean, you're not, we're not guessing. Jesus is the Messiah. How do we know? He fulfilled the scripture. 380. So that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. Well, what scripture did he fulfill? Psalm 69, 21. It says, when I was thirsty, they offered me vinegar. They gave me vinegar to drink. What are some of the prophecies with Jesus? I'll just give you a handful. These are all ones that are easily known. Born in Bethlehem, direct prophecy. He was to come out of Egypt, direct prophecy. He was to die on a tree, did that one. They were gambling for his clothing, get, they, that happened. Betrayed by his friend, that happened. Buried in a rich man's tomb. He was to be executed with thieves, but buried in a rich man's tomb. Figure that one out. God intentionally says, he dies with beggars, but he's buried with the rich. And you would go, what? How's that possible? How do you die with beggars and yet you're buried with the rich? Exactly. But that's what he did. And he was to rise three days later. The rabbis knew that. They put a guard around the tomb. They didn't want him rising three days later. They knew the obviously we can't have this guy rising from the dead. So if he tries to rise from the dead, we, you kill him, okay? If the descendants, that's pretty much it. Kill him again. <laughs> we cannot have this. <laughs> Either kill him again, or if the disciples come for the body, that was the rumor, kill them. But nobody came. Jesus rose. And they all hit the bricks, man, when he rose. He rose. And the angels were chilling out on the tomb. And when Mary came, she said, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's alive. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. He is a living God. Alive. He's not distant from his people. He's up close and personal. So they, they gave him wine on the cross. They gave him a drink called Pascha. And what it was, was it sour wine. So let's see if we can have any more honesty in this service. Anybody here drink wine? Okay, we have a few. All right, there we go. Not anymore. That's good, right? So drinking isn't sinful. Drunkenness is. Let's just be clear. And if you can't drink without becoming drunk, then to you it is sin. So let's just, let's just be honest here. So wise answer, Alex. <laughs> Pharmacia, drugs too, right? And so they, 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 what they would do is they would take the wine, and when the wine would go sour, the wine would go bitter, they would give it to the poor. And the poor, because the, you know, the poor couldn't afford wine, so they would give them the bitter wine or the vinegared wine. They would take the vinegared wine, they would mix it with water to dilute it, and they would drink it. And it was a very common drink of the poor. It was called Pascha wine, right? 
So if you ever see a brand name Pasca, don't buy that one, right? That's not the one you want. But Pasca, so Jesus on the cross, he's drinking the drink of the poor. Again, if you can understand the prophetic significance of what he's doing. So when he was baptized, the Holy Spirit came upon him as a what? Come on, help me. D-d-dove, right, that's right. Every time I ask a question, if you say Jesus, that's always the right answer. <laughs> always. Holy Spirit came upon him as Jesus. That's right. That's always. In this house, Jesus is always the right answer. I don't care. What's one plus one equals two? Jesus. Give that child a star. <laughs> Promote that kid to the front of the class. <laughs> Jesus is always the right answer. And so the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus as a dove. The dove was the offering of the poor. So again, Holy Spirit could have came, he could have come, he could have manifested himself as a crown. Jesus comes out of the water and there's a crown on his head, but he didn't. He, Jesus, the Holy Spirit chose to identify himself with the poor, the poor, the broken, the lost, the needy of humanity. Jesus drinks the wine of the poor. Exactly. And then they take, they, so he's hanging on the cross, he's about nine feet up, you know, he's you know, he's about four feet above my, you know, your height, your head here. And they would, they took the, they were going to give him something to drink. The first offering, they gave him drink twice. The first one he received, he didn't receive because it was mixed with myrrh. Myrrh was like a narcotic. It was a number, right? Sort of like an opiate. Op- we would look like op- painkiller. Jesus rejected the myrrh mixed drink, but he takes this one. Why does he take this one? Because this is the vinegared wine that's prophetically spoken that he drinks. And so they drink it. Not only does he drink the pasca, the vinegared wine, he drinks it off a hyssop stick. Well, what's the big deal with a hyssop stick? During the feast of Passover, when the Jews came out of Egypt, they were to take the blood of the Passover lamb and they were to dip the hyssop stick in the blood of the Passover lamb and strike the doorposts. So here we have the, the, uh, the lamb of God, the, the, the Passover lamb for the sins of the world, dying on the cross, being given vinegar in according to the prophecy, and he's given the vinegar off of a hyssop stick. <laughs> and the Romans wouldn't have been that strategic. They wouldn't have been going, hey, somebody give me a hyssop stick. They were grabbing what was available to them because they were, everybody probably had hyssop sticks because it was a symbol of Passover. And so they probably said, find a stick. Okay, they grabbed it, and it was a hyssop stick, put the sponge on it, and gave it to them. So the Passover lamb fulfilled prophecy, and not only that, the imagery was again presented that the, the blood with the, with the hyssop stick. Exodus 12, 22, take the hyssop stick, dip it in the blood filled, and then wipe it on the sides of the door frames. That was the stick that they were to use. It was a specific stick, specific plant. So the third thing it does is it demonstrates his love. Jesus loves you. That's what the cross says. Yes, come on. That's right. That's always, a good, that's always good news. He loves you. 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 Love is to seek the highest good. So when you realize what God's love actually is, it, God has no, it's not an emotional attachment that he has for you. God does not sit there and go, oh, Kevin, you're just a wonderful person and you just make me feel so warm inside. That's not the love that God has for me. God's love for me is he looks at me and says, I want nothing but the absolute best for you. That's the love that he has. And everything that I do is for your highest good. That's what love means. Love is an action, and biblical love is to seek the highest good. So when we think, oh, God loves us, and we equate God's love with emotion, we're missing it. Because we think if we do something wrong, then God doesn't feel the same way about us. That's not true. God never changes. He loves you. He is always after your best interests. Yeah? So true. That's why things shift and change in your life. He's identifying problems. Christians get uncomfortable sometimes because God is exposing an area of their life and they think he's shaming them. He's not shaming you. He's showing you something that's harmful to you. He's showing you something that's intrusive or something that is invasive that is potentially going to harm you. That's what he shows you. So a lot of times when God starts dealing with you or he starts, you know, like when Christians first come to Christ, all everything's good and dandy, isn't it? That's right. The idea is, is if you want your prayer answered, get a new believer to pray for you because Jesus hears all their prayers, right? It's kind of like the thing, right? And new, new Christians, everything goes right. I got promoted. You're like, what? You know? 
I got a new car. And you're like, what in the world? But then about six months in, the tables change. What happens is this God is wooing them and validating the love. Then what happens is that love, don't, that, that relationship has to be sustainable. A faith that is not tested is no faith at all. Faith must be tested. And so God begins to test the faith. And not only does he test the faith, he proves to us, he starts pointing us in the direction of his word and into the promises. But not only that, he begins to expose things within your life. He shows you your impatience. So happy day. <laughs> True. You're working in an environment that's oppressive and you can't, you can't get another job to save your life. And the job that you're in is murderous to you because what he's trying to do is he's trying to teach you faith. He's trying to teach you endurance. He's trying to teach you faithfulness. There's a lot of things that he starts doing. He starts exposing things in your life. Irresponsibility. Your irresponsible behavior that you had before you knew him. Now you're with him, and he calls you unto discipleship, and he starts exposing things in your life. That's why a lot of Christians don't like it. They find Christianity sometimes when they come to Christ. They're like, well, what do you mean I'm supposed to show up on time? You're supposed to show up on time. Well, what do you mean I'm supposed to give? You're supposed to give. Well, what do you mean I'm supposed to serve? You're supposed to serve, you know? And, and what it is is it's, it's, it's what you're doing is you're giving your life away. Jesus said that whoever seeks to hold their life will lose it. But you're, you're to give your life away for his sake. And as we give our lives away, less of us, more of him. We empty ourselves as an act of worship, which is our reasonable service, Romans 12, 1. Present yourselves a what? Living sacrifice. Get on the altar sacrifice. Sacrifice is not what's convenient. This is, again, American Christianity. If it's not convenient, we don't do it. Well, that's not convenient for me, brother. I can't do that. It's not convenient. That's uncomfortable, you know? <laughs> I was reading some stuff about the early days of church in America, and what they really wanted in the message was conviction. They, get, they, would, you, they would write articles about pastors. His message was not convicting. Felt no conviction whatsoever. Those would be like the, the write-ups of the teaching. They actually had a church in Congress, in the Hall of Congress, where the congressmen and the senators would go on Sunday mornings and have church. And if the pastor didn't speak for two hours, they wouldn't invite him back. Uh-huh. And you know what they'd say? We're here. Teach us something. Don't come up here with some dandelion message. Bring the house or don't come at all. Now, it's not about conviction. It's about comfort. I didn't find your message comforting today, Pastor. I didn't get the warm glow of witness upon my heart. I didn't get that. I didn't feel like I was at the fairgrounds eating cotton candy, you know, with butterflies flying around my head at all times. I didn't, I didn't really feel that way. Our, 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 our paradigm has shifted. What changes us is when we're challenged. Challenging our lives in light of the gospel is what changes us. When we see what God has called us to be and we see where we're at, then we recognize that we must transform, be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Start thinking differently and living differently. Stop thinking from a cultural mindset and think from a kingdom mindset. That's the transformation of the mind. We are not to think as the culture. We are not of this culture. We are of the kingdom. So our mindset is as from above on earth as it is in heaven. Anybody ever heard of that one? That's what we're supposed to be. On earth, as our mindset is from his world into ours. What does that look like? That's the question. That's the pursuit. That's what we are to push towards. But that's how we're supposed to bring our lives in light of that and move towards that. And that's what brings the change. The cross and Jesus' thirst makes, shows us that there's provision for mankind's thirst. We're all thirsty. People are thirsty. They don't know what for, but we're all thirsty. Just look at your life. Look at the things that you pursue. We're thirsty for something, aren't we? We're looking for something, looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for meaning, looking for certain things. What we have, this again is, this is a complete, I'm probably going to do something on the mind of Christ. There's, there has to be a complete reframing of the way that we think. We pursue worldly values, and we pursue worldly desires, and what do we get? Worldly results, which is what? Emptiness, barrenness. The Bible says leanness within the soul. Yes. Our soul is lean, never satisfied, because we're pursuing the wrong things. 
We, we trained the church to seek. I just had a friend of mine, he was talking about their life groups, and I was talking to him about it, and I'm not going to say where he goes, but he was just talking to me about their life groups, and um, he's like, what do you guys do? And I go, well, we pretty much go over the Sunday message or whatever, you know, and it's a, you know, we, I was trying to show him our life groups. And he goes, you know, they, our life group was all about how to get people to get a mortgage. You know, I'm like, that's your life group? He said, yeah, you know, it was training marriage couples on how to get a mortgage. I'm like, wait a minute, so that's the life group at church? That's what you guys are coming together on a Wednesday or Tuesday or whatever, and you're coming together to get a mortgage? Nothing wrong with a mortgage, but that's not really the place to do that. And what we're doing is we're training people into a cultural mindset. Now, should we be trained financially? Of course. Should we train people to get a mortgage? Yes, but not in a life group, right? We're going to do a financial seminar. Come to that. That's different. But you see, what we're doing is we're, we're acclimating people into a mindset other than it's out of the kingdom. And what we don't realize is, is that what will happen when you teach a message like that is the same thing that happened to Jesus. 350 waved goodbye on one day. Read it. He said, you want to follow me? This is the, he's never retracted the statement. I just want to be on record of saying this. What Jesus said still stands. He said, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. You must not love your mother, your brother, your sister, your brother. Nothing comes before me. If anything comes before me, you are not worthy of me. If you set your hand to follow me and you turn away from me, you are not worthy of me. And the list goes on. And he didn't blink, and he didn't stutter. And 350 people on one day left. And Peter's about having a breakdown. He's like, Lord, they're all leaving. Everybody's leaving. And Jesus goes, are they? He goes, you want to go too? You want to go too? And this is why we, we, we're very careful and cautious in our American churches with the message that we teach because, oh, this is too hard a saying. Oh, God forbid we have to deny ourselves. Isn't Jesus my bellhop? Isn't he here to serve me? Isn't he here to answer my, to my every whim? That's our perception of the gospel. And that is not the kingdom. It's not the kingdom. And so that's how we kind of tiptoe through the tulips and we just kind of play around with this stuff. But Jesus never, he never blinked when he said the message. He said, all of you for all of me. And I'm sorry, that's a pretty good deal. I'll make that deal on a Tuesday. You know what I'm saying? All of me for all of him. I'll take him every day. All that you are, Lord, for all that I am, I give it all. There's nothing I hold back from you. And the Bible says if we seek first the kingdom and what is right to him, what, would he, what do we get? Everything. Everything. What's everything? Everything is everything. You're created. God has no problem with your prosperity. God has no problem with your success. But if you are not centered in his kingdom, you cannot maintain your prosperity, nor can you maintain your success. Because you're doing it for all the wrong reasons. You're doing it for you. And you are not created to be glorified. You were created to hold glory, but in the weight and the light of who he is. We're glorified in Christ. We're not glorified in ourselves. And anything that we do in and of ourselves, it always collapses. And it never really has meaning. What if you pivoted your, vision, your business and said, this business exists for this reason? Pick one. Come up with a list. Ask God why you're doing it. What do you want me to do? And he says, I want you to do this to do that. That's what I want. And, and, in the, and in the end, everything else will be added unto you. You shouldn't be ashamed or shouldn't be afraid or anything. You shouldn't even be blink when things are added to you. I tell Christians, don't cry when your harvest comes, Christian. Don't you do anything but dance when your harvest comes. You've been waiting for that harvest. You've been believing for that harvest. You've been sacrificing for that harvest. Don't cry when your harvest comes. Because your harvest comes as a result of you being, as, as a result of what you're doing for the Lord. Everything will be added unto you. It's promised to you. It's promised to you. Provision belongs to you. God has no problem. He celebrates the prosperity of his people. He celebrates the success of his people. Deuteronomy 8.18, the Lord your God has given you the power. Okay, so let me just say this. The power. That power belongs to each and every one of you. And what is that power? The Bible says to obtain wealth. Every believer has the power to obtain wealth. And that's where we typically stop. That's where our prosperity churches stop right there. But there's another, there's another verse to that. So that you might establish his covenant in the land. 
In other words, God gives you an ability to generate wealth in order for you to supply and support his kingdom. It's true. It's true. And what we need, it's true, you can celebrate that. And what we need to know is if we don't do it on the front end, we're most definitely not doing it on the back end. If you can't give it 50 bucks, you're not giving it 5,000. And if you can't give it 5,000, you're not giving it 50,000. And if you can't give it 50,000, you're not giving it a half a million. And if you can't give it a half a million, you're not giving it 5 million. If any of that freaks you out at the level of giving, wherever you are, if your level of giving can't match, you're, you're not going, you're, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Or if it'll happen, it won't be something that's sustainable. The Bible says God's blessing adds no sorrow to it. So when God gives it to you, it's there. It's established. It's not going anywhere. If you get it, if you give it to yourself, then somebody can take it from you. If God gives it, he adds no sorrow to it. No one's taking it. No one's taking it. Even if the circumstances change, the wisdom by which you gained that is not going from you. A lot of times people are successful and prosperous and they don't realize that when they seek God, God opens up to you realms of wisdom. Christians are neutered oftentimes in the realms of wisdom because they refuse to honor God. And so wisdom is withheld from them. And you can even look at them and go, don't you know this? And they're going to go, no. And you'll look at them and they'll make decisions. And it's like, duh, why are you doing that? Because wisdom is withheld from them because they will not honor God. The Bible says, say to wisdom, you are my sister. Honor creates access. When we honor God, not only, God not only blesses us, he opens up realms of wisdom, opens up realms of understanding and opportunity. Yes. He doesn't just come and hand you a Reader's Digest check. <laughs> That'd be great, wouldn't it? <laughs> Woo, balloons at the door, confetti, here's your check, yeah. Put that on Instagram, you know. That'd be great. But it doesn't work like that. God, when God provides for us, he provides you with opportunity. That's what he does. You are provided with opportunity. So God makes provision for all mankind. He says this, the days are coming to scare us the Lord that there will be a famine in the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but for hearing the word of the Lord. Man's thirst, mankind's thirst and mankind's hunger is for the Lord. We don't know it. Do you know Jesus is the desire of nations? He's everything everyone wants. They just don't know it. I'm talking not just salvation. He is everything you could ever possibly want. He is the satisfaction of everything and all that you could ever want. Your dreams, your hopes, your visions, everything, that you, all of your longings are found in him and in him alone. He's the desire of nations. How do you realize that? You realize it through intimacy. Into me you see. Right? Using women, because they're oftentimes it's an object of intimacy with women. Right? Women don't, don't open up until there's an investment made in the relationship. If you open up, ladies, you're not designed to do that. You're designed to create intimacy. You're, you are a garden enclosed, which means there's one way in. And the, and the person that comes into the garden is to be a husbandman, someone that's willing to invest in the soil. That's the word husbandman is the same word, is the same word for gardener, right? So when you're a garden enclosed, it doesn't mean you have multiple entry points. It's you're not a public garden. You're a private garden. And what God, is, God enables the woman is, to, is that the garden blooms through the intimacy with the gardener. Not gardeners, you know, not landscapers. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> the gardener. And so what happens is, is the idea is that the garden blooms and flowers and releases itself when the gardener tills the soil or works the soil. And what God gives you is he gives us insight into his nature. There are parts of the Lord that are only cultivated and developed through intimacy with him. He hides things. It is the glory of kings to hide the matter, conceal the matter. It is the glory of, of princes. It is the glory of God to conceal the matter. It is the glory of kings, that's us, sons and daughters, kings and queens, to reveal it. So God has concealed it, and we are to pursue him in intimacy until it becomes revealed. There are things in your life that will not be revealed until you get intimate with the Lord. We treat Jesus so generically. We treat God so generically. He wants intimacy. He wants a love relationship with you. He's not freaked out at your warts. He knows you're weak. He knows your failings. He knows what you don't know. He knows all about you. 
He knows everything about you, and he still wants you. Right? Hello? Again, good news. Good news. He knows everything about me, and he still wants me. He knows things about me. He knows areas of brokenness in my life that I don't even know are there. He knows areas of brokenness within your life that you don't even know is there. And one of the things he does in intimacy is he takes that brokenness and he hands it to you. He goes, look at that. And you're going to go, what? That was in me? Like, yep, that's in you, Kevin. You want to do something about this? That's how he works. Intimacy, 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 depth, depth, depth. In your world, you begin transformed. And it's just like, it's, it's, a, it's another reality. It's a reality beyond religion. It's a living, breathing, communal relationship on all the time. But you've got to be open to him. And you've got to allow him into layers of your life that you don't let certain people come into. A lot of Christians, we keep Jesus at, oh, I have a relationship with God. No, you don't. No, you don't. If God was to correct you or tell you something, you'd be in the corner sucking your thumb. It's true. If he was to tell you what your problem is, you would go in the corner and suck your thumb. And the reason you'd be sucking your thumb and pouting is because you don't know you're loved. It's one of the things he does in relationship. He intentionally offends you. That's right. Intentionally offends you. He'll look at you and go, you have a problem with follow-through, Kevin. And you'll go, <laughs> Jesus says I got a problem with follow-through. <laughs> and he'll leave me there. He'll let me suck my thumb and cry a river in the corner. He will. Because what he'll do is he'll, he'll and then what he'll tell you is he'll, tell, he'll try to correct you again. And he'll try to get you to understand you don't know you're loved. Because if you knew you were loved, you knew that what I told you is not to reject you. But because you view it as a rejection, you have an issue with yourself and you have a lie that you believe that says you're not loved. You believe a lie. That's why Christians, we don't have intimacy with our father. We don't. Because we don't want him saying that to us. We don't want, he's a rock of offense, people. He offends the sinner and he offends the saint. He will tell you what time it is. You start asking him for greatness, he's going to start telling you. He's going to start doing inventory. He's going to say, you want greatness? Blowing out the house, taking the stuff out of the closet. He's going to get rid of all the junk. He's going to start reordering everything, and you won't like it. You won't like it. He's going to undo your habits. He's going to undo your attitudes. He's going to show you all the dysfunction that has to change in your world. That's right. Everything. He's going to show you where you're disobedient. He's going to show you where you have an attitude problem, where you have a pride and an arrogance problem. He's going to show you where the devil has a hold on you. Oh, no. You have to realize something. Pride always defends what the Holy Spirit points out. You have to recognize that pride is your enemy. So when God says, you have a follow-through problem, and your pride defends, oh, no, I don't. Oh, no, I don't. Or your pseudo pride defends it and you go in the corner and suck your thumb, which all that's doing is revealing a lie that you believe. You're believing a lie. That's all that does. When a Christian gets offended and runs away, the only thing that does is it shows that you believe a lie. You are entrenched and bound to a lie. You don't believe you're loved. You don't believe it. So true. We have to realize that he is going to say things to us that we are not going to like. Or... You know what's worse? You know what's worse? The worst, you know what's worse? The, when God is not speaking, a famine not for bread or for water, but for hearing the word of the Lord. The worst thing in the world is where there is no prophetic word. The worst thing in the world is when God is not speaking to you. They are blind leaders of the blind. This is the worst, this is the worst indictment you could ever receive from the Lord. Leave them alone. Have nothing to do with them. In other words, let them be and let them rot where they stand. There is nothing more frightening than that, than for God to leave you as you are. That's what Jacob, that's what changed Jacob. Jacob argued with God all night long. And Jesus said, I give up. You will not listen. You're hard-headed. You're obstinate. I'm leaving you. And he walked away. And what did Jacob do? He grabbed him. And he said, don't leave me the same. Do not leave me as I am. 
You can't change you, Christian. You can't change you. And the Lord said, I'm going to change you, and I'm going to... You know what he did? He changed his prophetic destiny. He changed his name. He said, you will no longer be called usurper, which is what Jacob means. Self-centered, self-seeking. I get it my way. I burn other people to get what I want. That's what Jacob means. Heel catcher. I grab you to throw you behind me so that I can come to the front. You will no longer, I, you will no longer be called by that. You will be called Israel, which means prince of God. I'm going to give you a new identity, and I'm going to call you by your prophetic identity. That's what he said. But I'm going to touch your hip to remind you that you're arrogant and that you're prideful. That's what he told him. The hip was touched as a, remor as a memorial to Jacob that you are a runner, and you run from the purposes and the destinies of God. You call for transformation, but you run. So if you want transformation, I'm giving it, but you're not running anymore. And every time you limp, you're going to remember that was who you were, but that's not who you are. The worst thing in the world is when God doesn't speak to you. That's the worst. That's the worst. Silence is not a good... When he says, I'm working on it and everything's quiet, okay, we're cool. But when God's not speaking to you, that's a problem. That's a problem. And when you become so obstinate that you refuse to hear anything that he tells you, and I'm not talking about logos. The church dumbs it down. We're like elementary school students. Do you understand that the Bible is basically elementary school for the spirit? We act like it's PhD level. The scripture is nothing more than the foundation to the spirit. And we act like, oh, oh, it's the doctrinal understanding of all of the lifetime. And it's only the word. The word is but a foundation. That's it. The word is but a language and a principle system by which the spirit operates. We stand on the word and we operate from the spirit. Walk in the word, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's not what it says. Walk in the spirit. We dumb this stuff down, and we act like we're geniuses, and we're not. We're far from it. This is why we cannot manifest destiny corporately. The church is not just to manifest destiny individually. We have a corporate destiny. Yes. We are a city on a hill. We are the light of the world. Are we? Yes. It's true. This is what we are, but this is not what we manifest. This is not what we manifest. God said you're a beacon of hope. All nations will look to you. Do they? They're not looking to the church. I got you news for that. They should be looking to the, the church does not manifest its destiny because we don't understand it. And we operate according to dysfunctional principles, and we will stay that way until we're ready to receive the correction that is necessary. We don't want to receive the correction. We have entrenched teachers who will say, sola scriptura, I'm all in, only scripture, I got it. Scripture's the beginning point, but what they are is they're woefully ignorant of the spirit, and only the spirit manifests life, only the spirit manifests power. It's not spirit or scripture, it's scripture and spirit, it's both, but we have to understand the dominance of the spirit of God in his role in the matter. The Holy Spirit is not to subordinate himself to Scripture. Do you understand that? He is the crown, he is the government ruling authority of heaven come to earth. That's who the Holy Spirit is. And if you see him in any other way except the ruling authority of heaven, you don't know who he is at all. You have no clue who he is. He's not just some joyrider giving you pinwheels and woo, we're going to have a party. That's not the Holy Spirit. He is the ruling authority of heaven. That's why deliverance comes when the Holy Spirit says so. When we give the Holy Spirit what he wants, boom, deliverance comes. Nothing changes until we offer the Holy Spirit, the ruling government of heaven, what he wants. Then it comes. We have to change. We have a destiny that is unbelievable. And what we do, and again, the Bible, that's going to take scripture, we are Laodicea. What is the church? Read the church of Laodiceans. Read the seven letters to the seven churches. And read the church of Laodicea. We are rich and in need of nothing. Woo! We got it all. We got Ferraris and, you know, trapeze artists on the stage. Six million dollar gymnasiums in our churches. We got everything. 
And Jesus said, you're blind, poor, and wretched. Everything they pointed at and said was successful, heaven said was deficient. He said, you're saying this is where it's at. I'm saying you're deficient. You're useless. You're neither hot nor cold. You produce no healing or refreshing. That's the idea. It was the healing waters of, of Laodicea. There were cool springs and hot springs. People would go to be refreshed in the cool springs, and they would go for medicinal purposes in the hot springs. And so when God is speaking, he's speaking in relationship to that region. He said, you offer neither healing nor refreshing. You're useless. Useless. But you got all the toys. You got all the bells. You got all the whistles. Nothing wrong with the toys. Nothing wrong with the bells and whistles. But we cannot sacrifice that or put that in the place of substance. And that, again, ladies and gentlemen, is the problem. That is the fundamental problem within the church. And we have to transform. We have to change. We have to shift. He's the desire of nations. We have to recognize thirst in other people. We have to serve other people. We're the body of Christ. If there's a generation that needs to be evangelized, it's this one. Oh, my gosh. Have you seen the millennials? No, I just want to ask a question. Have you seen the millennial generation? If you're a millennial in the room, don't punch me. But if, you're, if, you, if you've said, look, I've, I've I'm a parent of a 26-year-old and a 19-year-old. I understand, right? That generation needs Jesus more than any other. And the reason they do. And the reason why is that the preachers of their generation have failed them. That's true. The church has been woefully silent since the 90s. It's true. There's no open proclamation of the gospel in our land the way that it, If you look back, go back into the 90s and look at the people and look at the way the gospel was presented in our country prior to the mid-90s. It was open. It was straight. We had crusade. We had all these crazy things going on. And people came to Christ because the gospel was openly preached. The, the millennial pastors don't even use the word sin. If you go to a church and the pastor in a month doesn't use the word sin one time, there's a problem. There's a massive problem. If they never use that word, there's a problem. If they never use repentance ever, there's a problem. And yet we have churches that are built on that premise alone, never using the word sin, never using the word repentance. We don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to get anybody upset. Well, repentance. Well, no. What do I? I'm not repent. Sin. Don't call that sin. Who are you? To, don't be judgmental. Don't you call what I do sin. Who are you? Oh, you're judging me. Jesus doesn't judge. <laughs> it's nonsense. You think it, you, it's, it's hilarious when you think about it on the surface. But I'm telling you right now, this is what's going on. This is exactly what's going on. I could name the churches and I could tell you, go listen to six weeks of their sermons and tell me if you hear anything of any level of conviction in them. I could literally tell you, go listen to these five churches and listen into their messages, listen to six, pick six at random and tell me what level of conviction or sin or righteousness or judgment is preached in any of that message. It's John Maxwell. I love John Maxwell. It's self-help, rah-rah, you know, uh, Jesus is your champion, you know, all that stuff. And there's, that, that's good. It's good in a, in, a, in a part, but it is not good in the whole. In other words, the entire church can't be built around that. It can be a component of the church, a piece of the church, where there's encouragement, exhortation, building up, life, life, life power. That, that's a component, but the church is not built around the substance of that. Our church is built around blood. It's messy. Resurrection. Life. I digress. <laughs> Man. I serve the church because there's only one thing Jesus is building. He's building the church. He's not doing anything else. Read your Bible. Not one thing that Jesus says, I'm building that. But the one thing he says he's building is the ecclesia. And the question is, is do we build it according to his purposes? We, the church will not last. It will not endure the day. It will not endure the day. In the latter days, men will put, lay up for themselves teachers who will tickle them. Tickle me. Tickle me. Hey, man, I love a good laugh as much as the next person. But if all I'm doing is bringing you in here, laying you on the floor and tickling you every time you walk in the door, th there's a problem. Now, I have a little grandson. I love to tickle him. But he doesn't want me tickling him all the time. I love to tickle him, 
the reason I love to tickle him because I love to hear him laugh, right? But he doesn't want to be tickled all the time. And neither should you. You don't want to be tickled all the time. You want something a little bit more. The Bible calls it meat. We need some substance. We have to realize what we're thirsty for. We're thirsty for something. Jesus goes and meets a woman at the well. He goes to a town where nobody wanted to go, and he meets a woman that nobody wanted to associate with. He sits down with a well with her, and he starts asking her for water. And she's like, why are you a Jew, a rabbi, asking me, a woman Samaritan, for water? And Jesus said, well, the real question, ready for this? I love this. Jesus says, the real question here isn't why I'm asking you for water. The real question is, why are you not asking me for anything? Huh? He said, if you knew the gift of God that was sitting in front of you, you would ask. If you knew who I was. The question isn't why I'm asking you for water. The question, lady, is why are you not asking me for anything? That's the question. If you knew the gift of God that was sitting in front of you, you would ask. And I would give you, name it. We don't ask because we don't believe we're worthy. That's a lie. We don't ask because we don't believe he's loving. That's a lie. We don't ask because we don't believe he's generous. That's a lie. We don't ask because we don't believe he'll actually do what he said he will do. Again, those are all lies. Those are all lies. We have to confront the lies that we believe in order to receive the truth that he has for us. Those are lies. Why don't you ask, Christian? What are you asking for? Are you believing God for anything? Anything at all. Aim high. How about God doubles your business this year? How about that one? I got one person. That's all I need. One. <laughs> what, if you, what do you believe in God for? Pick something. I'm believing that I'm going to give 25% of my income in offering. What does that look like? Well, it looks like God's going to have to provide more income for me in order for me to give it. What, I mean, no, I'm serious. I'm just picking random things. What are you believing God for? It, what, what, what are you believing? Say, Lord, we're going to reach India this year. We're going to start a school this year. If you don't think you're part of a church that overreaches, you don't know anything about us. We overreach. We took this building with 17 people. <laughs> we're doing a school, and we don't even know what we're doing. You'll hear more about it. We're going to do a meeting in a couple weeks. We're putting it all back. We're going to format it. We're just going to put it together. We're going into India. We're going to start planting churches in India. Do we know what we're doing? No. But we're going to do it. Do you have the resource to do it? Nope. But we're believing God for it. And we're going to move into that mountain. We want to go into high schools this year. We want to start ministering in high schools this year. Do you have the resources to go into high schools? Nope. Do you know anybody that can go into high schools? Nope. Do you have any open doors at all into the high schools? Nope. But we believe God. We're going to minister into high schools this year. All right. You say, well, what if it doesn't work out? Well, if it doesn't work out, you know what it'll do? It'll create momentum that will sling us into something else. And I will rather fail for trying than fail for nothing. If the ship's going down, let it go down in this direction. I'm not saying the ship's going down, but if you're going to fail, my point is, fail in a fail forward, fail in a direction reaching for something bigger than yourself. I just read a quote the other day. It said, even turtles know they have to stick their neck out. It's true. Even turtles know they have to stick their neck out in order to get anywhere. It's how a turtle walks. They use their neck. Isn't that crazy? God creates this animal that hides in a shell, and the only way it can walk or create momentum is by sticking its neck out and using its neck to walk. Watch a turtle. It walk like that, the little ones. This woman thought she needed a husband. She'd had five. Okay, count them, ladies. Five. You think you had it bad? This chick had five husbands. Five. And the one she was living with now was not her husband. She'd pretty much given up on the whole idea of marriage and just said, let's just fornicate. Let's just get it out of the blue. Just, just throw it out there. And Jesus, he said, call your husband. She said, I don't have a husband. Jesus said, right said. You've had five. He knows everything about you. Did he judge her? Did he go, how dare you? I don't even know why I'm talking to you, woman. You've had five husbands out of my sight. He knew everything about the woman, and he didn't reject her. Why do you think he's going to reject you? 
He knew everything about her. What he's trying to do is minister. He says, you think that life's found there. Life's not found there. Then she said, well, we worship on this mountain. She thought life was found in another, in, in religious, in spirituality based in human wisdom. He says, life's not based in religion and human tradition. Church doesn't save anybody, guys. Jesus saves. This is the place of life and community. Without the Holy Spirit, there's nothing. <laughs> That's why it's come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Encounter us. Make us alive today. Let us know you. Release the love of the Father into our hearts. It's encounter-based. We have to encounter the Lord in a meaningful, living way, or we gather in vain. People come and go, come and go, and come and go. It's like church is a checklist. They just get it. That doesn't happen in Miami, but there's per certain parts of the country where people go to church just to check it off the list because it's the religious thing to do. Down here to get people to come to church, that's, the, that's a miracle, you know. But like in certain parts of the South, everybody goes. It's just what they do. It's just tradition. They just go and check it off the list. Jeremiah 7:14. don't trust in lying vanities. You know, you're, you're, you're exercising yourself in a way that's not meaningful. Meaningful. We have meaningful, living, loving God who loves us and cares for us. We come to our Father's house. This is why, you, if you knew how much Jesus looks forward to Sunday, you would put it higher on your agenda than you do. And you know why? Because it's probably the only day that he can actually get you to sit down and listen to him. That's the truth. It's the only day where he can actually get you still enough where his spirit can minister to you. And the church does a disservice to the believer by ushering them in and ushering them out, ushering them in and ushering them out. That's a problem. And the reason that it's a problem is not because it's form and it's function and it's necessary from an organizational standpoint. It's a problem because it's not what the Lord wants. God's heart is for his people. He loves you. He wants to love on you today. Not love at you, love on you. Dode over you. Hear you, listen to you, bless you, honor you, draw you closer to him. That's why, that's, that's why it's, it's, it's meaningful that the church was created to be a ministry. A ministry. The ministry of the word, the ministry of the music, the ministry of prayer, the ministry of the spirit. We're to minister all the components. Everything is to be ministered. The ministry of, of, of honor, the ministry of the offering, it's all a ministry, an exchange. And we have, but we, all, we all often think of ministering to the Lord, but God wants to minister to you, and it's very valuable to him. Very valuable. Our souls are to thirst for God like a dry and weary land, Psalm 63. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what is right. A lot of times we can't be filled because we're hungering and we're thirsting for the wrong thing. Our desire, our appetite is for the wrong thing. If you drink soda and that's all you drink, you're thirsty all the time. That sugar does not satiate you. It doesn't satisfy you. You say, how can I be thirsty? I just drank two liters of Coke. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I knew a guy, that's all he drank until he started going blind from um, diabetes. Like literally, the guy was going blind because all he drank was soda. You know, and he, why, is he, why is he still thirsty? Because he's drinking the wrong thing. That's why. Jesus paid for your weakness. You have to realize that you're thirsty, but you have to be thirsty for the right thing. We're thirsty for him. We're hungry for him. We want more of you, Jesus. More of you, Jesus. Our life into you. Our life into you. Your life into me. In this communal relationship. And then you begin to build a home and build a life together. Individually. And you begin to build a home together and a life together. Corporately. Jesus paid for your weakness. He knows you're screwed up. Okay? Have a Cinnabon. Relax. He knows you're messed up. He knows you can't do it. He knows not only do you make mistakes, but he knows people hurt you and wound you. It's a painful world we live in, isn't it? It's a hurtful, hurtful world. I mean, look around. Not just in, a, in society, in the world, people hurting people and wounding people and all kinds of stuff. We know that Jesus was wounded at least 365 times. Did you know that? 40 stripes with a cat of nine tails. 40, 40 whips with a cat of nine tails. 40 times 30 is 360. He had a pierce in each hand, he had a pierce in each foot, and he had a pierce in his side. That's 360 plus 5. Jesus can bear a wound for you every... He bears the wounds of the day, Christian. The wounds of the day. 
There's not a wound today that he will not bear. His provision is not for yesterday. His provision is for today. The provision for the wounds are for every single day. The burden for every single day. He knows you're weak. Only Jesus can meet your thirst. How many wells have you dug that you've dry, that are dry? Can we talk? <laughs> the older you get, the more you realize I've dug some really dry wells. Deep, keep digging, and then we keep digging. I know there's water here somewhere. I'm just going to dig a little deeper. <laughs> That's right. The woman with the five husbands, she's like, it's a numbers game. I know. I know this is going to work sooner or later. <laughs> the Lord says, my people have done two evils. They've turned away from me, and they've dug themselves out wells of their own, wells that cannot hold their water. The water that Jesus gives, this is the last part, is everlasting. What he gives you, he doesn't take away. This is really, you need to be safe and secure in the fact that God loves you. And what he gives you, he doesn't take away. The gifts and callings of God are without repentance. He doesn't change his mind. If God gave you salvation, he doesn't change his mind. Is salvation a gift? Is it? Okay, so it's a gift. And the Bible says the gifts and the callings of God, he doesn't change his mind. In other words, he doesn't take away. So if he gave it to you as a gift, he's not taking it away, right? He gave it to you. He gave you his spirit. He's not taking his spirit from you, Christian. Take not my Holy Spirit, his Holy Spirit from me. We pray like David prayed. Well, we're not in the Old Testament. We don't have the Holy Spirit by habitation, we, or not by visitation. We have the Holy Spirit by habitation. Old Testament, Holy Spirit came in visitation. He came and went, came and went, came and went. Subject to the Lord, right? The Spirit came and went. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is given to us in habitation. With us always, even to the ends of the age. We have an, inhab we have an indwelling spirit, habitually and habitationally with us, always. You say, I don't know he's there. We well, need to look for him. You need to call on him. You need to draw from the water that he provides. You need to enter into the atmosphere. It's there every time. Every single time. Every single time. I've had drunks and drug addicts, and oh, God's taking his spirit from me. I'm like, really? I said, hold your hands down like this. Hey, Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. So let his spirit come over. Wow, I feel him. I feel him again. Yeah, he doesn't take his spirit from you. He's not taking his spirit from you. Your problem is you're not relying on him. You're not drawing from him and living from him. The water that he brings is everlasting. The water that he brings is peace. He makes you lie down in green pastures and leads you beside still waters. You need peace? Holy Spirit gives you peace. Right? Anybody know that, story, that verse, peace that passes understanding? Everything looks like it's wrong. You should be freaking out, but you're calm and you don't know why. I, you know, I don't know why. I just feel, I feel like everything's going to be all right. I don't know why. I shouldn't feel this way. There's no reason for me to feel this way because it's the peace of God. It's the water of God. And this water will flow from within. You have a well within you, Christian. You have a well. Jesus, spring up a well within my soul. Right? We have a well. The Bible says that out of their belly will flow rivers of living water. This he spoke of by the Spirit. For those who would believe in him would receive. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. You have a well in you. You have a point of access. If you're dry and you're barren and you're empty, and you're lonely or whatever it is that you find yourself, it's not the Lord's fault. You have it. You have the well. These are hard lessons to learn, but you need to learn them. I'm telling you, nobody taught me this. I'm teaching you what the Lord taught me. I'd be like, oh, God, blah, blah, blah. No, 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 no. You don't love me. No, 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 no. He'd be like, get up, Kevin. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. Stop acting like you don't, you're not loved. Stop believing lies. You have a bucket. Drop it. Get it. You have a well inside of you. You feel as you feel because you're not drawing from what's been given to you. You have it. You're asking me for something that you're already in possession of. It's like, oh, Lord, if I only had a car. If I only had a car. Oh, God. It's like you got keys in your hand, bro. <laughs> the car's in the driveway. <laughs> we have access to the Holy Spirit. You have access to wisdom in the mind of Christ. 
We are a people unlike any other people on the planet. The enemy wants you to believe that you're common, but you are far from it. <laughs> you are far from common. You are not average. You're not. I just watched the show. Anybody uh, watch Netflix at all? Occasionally? Okay. The, the Royals. Is that, what was that called? The Crown or the Royals? I don't know. Something royal. I don't know. About royal family. I don't know. Whatever it is. One of you guys will remember it. But they had this kid, and he was part of the royal family, and he's at the school. And they go, you think you're better than us? And he goes, I know I'm better than you. We don't state that from ego. Uh, what we have, we are to use to serve. But in reality, Christian, you have access to a world that the unbeliever doesn't. You will rule nations. You will rule the world to come. So you better get used to it. You better get used to the, to the idea of divine royalty. And, oh, well, we can't, you know, we're just demure and humble Christians. The problem is that the Bible doesn't call you that. That's the problem. In the New Testament, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are divine royalty. You are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You are heirs, and therefore you, you are sons and daughters, Romans says, and therefore as sons and daughters, you're heirs. And you're not just an heir. You're a co-equal heir with Jesus. We are in a co-equal relationship with Christ. Heirs of his world and the one to come. That's what we are. Yes. Yes. But the enemy wants us to believe that we're just like everybody else. We're, on, we're just common. We're just like everybody else. We are literally the soul. We are to benefit. We are to take from his world in order to bring him glory and benefit the world. We are literally the benefactors of the world. That's what we're called to be. The salt of the earth. The cities on a hill. The light of the world. That's what we are. Jesus didn't say, I'm the light of the world. He said, you are the light of the world. He didn't say, I'm the salt of the earth. He said, you are the salt of the earth. He said, you are the city on a hill. You. Well, how do we do that if we're just like everybody else? We're not like everybody else. So stop acting like you're everybody else. Begin to act like a son and a daughter. Just what he, why do you think he said to Jacob, I'm not calling you a usurper anymore. We're all Jacobs, Christian. All of us. But Jesus doesn't call us Jacob. He calls us Israel, prince and princess. You need to begin to adapt your divine understanding and your identity and understand who you are. And if you just begin to understand that and then begin to press into that, what does it mean to be a son of my father? I'm a son of the highest. What does that mean? What does that mean in relationship to my father? What does that mean in relationship to myself? What does that mean in relationship to the world? Our world is not superior in other words, we're not rulers of dominance. We come underneath and serve. We use power justly, okay? Injustice is the abuse of power. The Christian is empowered with divine royalty, supernatural rights and inheritances, not to live in injustice, not to abuse power against others. Ours is justice, which is the right use of power. So what we have and what we are given is to serve, we are to take the resources by which they've been given to us, and we are to be servants of all. That doesn't mean we're doormats. <laughs> Just the thought. <laughs> now, I'm not. All right. Let's close. We got a prayer team today? All right. Prayer team's going to be available. I'm going to close. We got the school this afternoon. I want to encourage you to come if you want to come. Be doing some praying, breaking, renouncing. Oh, we have baptism today. And photo next week with roses. Yes. So let's pray. And we got to do some baptizing. In Jesus' name. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. And may the Lord be gracious to you in every way. And may you forever live within his favor. In Jesus' name. God loves you. We love you. Have a wonderful week. And we will be baptizing very shortly.